There is no other king than our King Jesus. Amen, church. And the beauty of our king is that our king is after our joy. And somebody in the room needs to hear that this morning, that Jesus is more for your joy than you are for your joy. I love that video, man. It gets me jazzed. It gets me pumped up because that's the same Jesus who wants my heart. That's the same Jesus who, who wants me to fall more in love with him daily. And that is the goal of us being here this morning, that we'd fall more in love with him. Amen. We've been in this series going through the book of Philippians, and we're talking about the joy-filled life. And we're talking about how Jesus, life in him is the only true way to joy. I love our definition of joy in this series. It's this, the deep abiding confidence that all is well, regardless of circumstance and difficulty. That king, what's that in your life? Let that sink in for a moment. Here's the thing about joy. It's always related to God. It's always connected to him. And it belongs only to those in Christ Jesus. It belongs only to those in Christ Jesus. So if you're in the room this morning, welcome. And if you don't know Jesus, can, can I lovingly tell you something? Man, you don't even know what joy is like yet. But here's the beauty of that. Jesus is putting an offer on the table that, man, if you really understand it this morning, I don't know how you could refuse it. It's joy. It's, it's the ability to look at any circumstance that life may throw at you and say, all is well, not because of what's going on, but because of who my king is. And when that king's in your corner, all is well. Belongs only to those of us who know him. And I love this. It is a permanent possession of everyone who is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? You cannot lose it. You can't get it and screw up so bad that it somehow melts away. The beauty of the joy-filled life is that once Jesus gives it to you, he seals it with the Holy Spirit. And you cannot lose it. It is a permanent possession. Church, this is the life that Jesus has called us to. I don't know about you, but I want more of it. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 this morning, if you have your Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14. And we're going to look at what Paul continues to describe this joy-filled life. And, and I believe if we look at it this morning, we're going to be surprised about what it looks like to live this joy-filled life. And yet it's absolutely worth living. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're just going to go right to the text because, man, that's what it's all about. Verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's a boss. Listen to this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. What a resume. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, church. Jesus, thank you that you are joy personified. That you don't just desire to offer us joy this morning, that you are joy, that you are a life, that you are salvation wrapped up in a person. So God, that is the goal this morning, to get to know you. We want to know you the way Paul describes you. We want to encounter you, experience you, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. 
So God, I pray for those of us in the room who maybe have a lot of head knowledge about Jesus or have been living the faith-filled life in such a way that we're more dependent on what's up in our heads than what's going on in our hearts. And God, I ask that you would meet us where we're at, that you would reveal yourself to us clearly and that you would lead us, that you would take us on the beautiful journey, the long journey, the rough journey from the head to the heart. And that Jesus, your word would illuminate in such a way that it changes our lives that we would walk out of here different, changed, set ablaze, and that the world would see us and that we would reflect the beauty of who you are and what you've done in our lives and that more and more and more would come to know you. That's the goal this morning, Jesus. Fill us with joy to overflowing. Have your way. We love you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. So in middle school, I read this book called uh, Where the Red Fern Grows. Raise your hand if you've read that book, Where the Red Fern Grows. I don't remember a lot about it. That's a hot minute ago in my life. Um, But I do remember this book uh, being pretty interesting, and I had to go back and Google some of the stuff. But the essence of the book, if you haven't read it, I won't spoil it too much. But it's about this boy named Billy. And Billy gets this desire to to get these hunting dogs. He, He wants them so badly, and so he gets these hunting dogs. And yet what he finds out quickly is that these hunting dogs will one day become that, but they're not that yet. And so Billy's like, well, I have to train these hunting dogs to to hunt raccoons, but how do I do that? Well, I need a raccoon, but I can't catch one because my hunting dogs can't do it yet. You see the problem. So Billy's wise grandfather says, hey, hey, Billy, I I have this idea. I'm going to teach you how to catch a raccoon. It's it's an old trick. He says, here's what you do. You find a piece of wood or a log that has a hole in it or drill a hole in it, and you take some nails and you put them in at an angle in the hole, and then you drop something down in the hole that shiny that would get the raccoon's attention. It would look something like what you see on the screen. And then Billy's grandfather says, so what will happen is the raccoon will see it, it'll, it'll see the shiny thing, and it'll stick its hand in there, it'll grab it with a clenched fist, and then as it goes to pull out, it'll, it'll catch on the nails. And Billy is sitting there, and he goes, but Grandpa, all the raccoon has to do is let go of what's ever in the hole. And he said, Billy, that's the catch. Raccoons are so stubborn that the moment they grab hold of that thing, whatever it may be, they're not going to let go. I remember reading that in middle school and thinking, raccoons are really dumb. <laughs> and that's about all I got out of it as a 13-year-old, right? But what I've come to realize in my own life, and maybe this is true in yours, that we're far more like that raccoon than we realize. Let that sink in for a moment. See, here is what Jesus is offering us. He's offering us joy, and yet what we do is we stick our hand in the trap for something that that is worthless, if we're honest, and we grab a hold of it, and we don't let go. And man, we try to yank it out because we know it's not good for us, right? And and we feel pain even of the nails digging in, and, and yet we don't let go. You see, all the raccoon has to do is let go, and it's free, and it can run and go wherever it may please. But raccoons like you and I at times, will settle for far less to the point of even death. Does that sound a little bit like your life in some way, shape, or form? What is the thing that you're holding on to, and how does it compare to what Jesus is offering? See, if the raccoon only knew that what he was holding on to was trash and what he had at his fingertips was freedom. Church, this morning, that is the offer on the table. And and here is how true joy is fully experienced. It's when we give up what we can't keep to take hold of what we cannot lose. It's the beauty of that song that we just sang, right? And I want want to go ahead and and, and let's talk about this for a moment. We're going to have a chance to sing that song again, and I hope it means a whole new thing after this sermon's done and that you literally, like, lose your minds in worship at the end of this service. Not because I'm telling you to, but because you see it. See, true joy is only experienced when you're willing to let go of what you you can't keep anyway to take a hold of what you cannot lose. That's what Paula is describing joy as in this passage. And so we're going to look at it. We're going to walk through this passage. And we're going to talk about how this becomes reality in our own lives. Look at verse 1. I love how it starts off. Paul says, finally, my brothers. This is how we know Paul is a good preacher, or at least a preacher. If you you look at the book of Philippians, it's four chapters. We're in chapter three at the beginning. So this is about halfway through Paul's letter. And he says, finally. He's only halfway done. 
So like any good preacher, they tell you they're wrapping up, but it still takes them about an hour to lay in the plane, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a little church humor. But I love this because this is really one big, massive thought that Paul wants to leave with the church at Philippi. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is simply saying, we've talked a lot about this so far in the series, but find joy in God, not stuff. He's constantly repeating this phrase. He's constantly saying, rejoice in the Lord. And we need to be reminded of that because here's our temptation. We want to rejoice in what the Lord gives. We want to rejoice in other things, other people, circumstances, stuff, whatever it may be. And Paul's reminding us, and it may be elementary, but we need the reminder. Rejoice in the Lord alone. Church, this morning, where is your joy? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or tell it out loud, but think about in your life right now, where is your joy? And if you're honest, like me, I, I see that, yes, my joy is in the Lord, but there's part of me that has joy in other things. And I want to let go. I want to experience what Jesus has for me by rejoicing in him and him alone. He then makes this abrupt change in verse 2 to go from talking about joy and finding joy in Jesus to then kind of giving us a, a warning and here's what it says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Wow. Once again, Paul, he's just straight up. He doesn't beat around the bush. He's just being real. And so Paul is saying, look out, look out, look out three times. He's warning about a very serious issue that is going on in the church. See, what is happening at this point in human history, Jesus has died, rose again, and he has been victorious over sin and death. And now there's this crowd of people following him that, that are a mixture of different people, Jews, Gentiles, and people who have all different kinds of cultural backgrounds. And what Jesus is saying is like, follow me. That, that's it. But what everyone else wants to do is they kind of want to bring their cultural context around it and start to add things to the gospel. Does it sound like the world we live in? It's an age-old problem. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, look out for those who are doing this type of thing. He's specifically addressing this people called the Judaizers, who were, were former Jews who are now starting to follow Jesus, and they're saying, you have to do all these other things. You have to add on. You have to, yes, trust in Jesus for salvation, but you have to do all these Jewish practices and obey the law. And Paul has no business of being associated with that whatsoever. He's very passionate about it, in fact. And I love what he calls them, because... Like, we, we kind of lose the translation. Like, for Paul to look at these people and to call the religious leaders of the time some of these names is astounding. But he says, he calls them dogs, which in that day and age was just a derogatory term, period. But it was also, a Jew, what Jews would do is they would look at people who are lesser than, the people who are unclean, the Gentiles, and call them dogs. Do you see the irony? Paul is calling the Jews dogs. What a slap in the face. And then he says they're evildoers. Now, Pharisees, the Judaizers, were known as the righteous, the religious people, the ones who did good, and yet Paul is calling them evil. And then he has a play on words here, and that's all I'll say about circumcision. But he says mutilating the flesh. It's a play on words saying that, that basically what you're doing with this practice, you're, you're mutilating the flesh, and that's about all you're doing. And Paul is going directly after these people because he sees the severity of this problem. And I want us to see the severity of our problem because our joy is at stake here, folks. See, what's going on is we're adding to the gospel. And Paul's warning is we must look out for those who add to the gospel because then it no longer becomes the gospel. Simply put, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But the moment we do this, Jesus plus anything, that equals nothing. I'll say it again. Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and Jesus plus anything equals nothing. We're going to talk more about that if that's new to you later on in the text. But Paul is, is adamantly against adding anything to the gospel because what that does is it minimizes not only the person but the work of Jesus Christ. And that is serious business because our joy is found in Jesus Christ alone. He then goes on to say, this is what the real circumcision is, because, you see, ultimately, circumcision was an outward expression of what was supposed to be an inward reality. That, that's simply what it was, and so Paul then says, but we are the circumcision, meaning we are the people of God. 
And this is what true people of God look like. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So simply put, worship by the Spirit means that the Holy Spirit is the one who dictates and determines how we live. So, so if we're truly following Jesus and we're truly seeking the joy-filled life, then we are allowing Holy Spirit to dictate how we live. How are we doing? If I'm being honest, sometimes I struggle with this, right? But, but here's the beauty of, of getting to know Jesus more and more is that we see Holy Spirit begin to take more and more control of our lives. And often we're looking for it to be in big, massive ways, but often it's in the subtle little things in everyday living. Like I know for me recently, I've seen Jesus do this in my life. I've seen Holy Spirit tell me to do things. I'm like, uh-uh, I'm not going to do it. And he goes, I didn't ask you, I told you. <laughs> and I love how Holy Spirit talks to me because he knows me. He knows what will sweetly convict me. I love that about him. Say, hey, you, you might want to put up the dishes. Okay, Jesus, but the show's really good. Just do it, man. <laughs> I love the way Holy Spirit talks to us. He's the one who begins to control and dictate how we live. And then it says, glory in Jesus. This means that Jesus is the one who they boast about. If we're living the joy-filled life, Jesus is the main topic of conversation. Jesus is the main person rolling off of our lips. One of my favorite moments in youth ministry is this young man stopped coming to youth group, and someone asked him, hey, man, why did you stop coming? He said, man, I'm just tired of that Alex dude. All he does is talk about Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, that's right. That's what I want to be known for. I want to annoy people with how much I talk about Jesus. And I'm not talking about being that overly annoying person that we all, even as Christians, roll our eyes at, right? But I'm talking about, like, is he the topic of conversation in your life? Is he the one when things are going well and when things are not going well, that that, that doesn't matter? But he's the one rolling off of our lips. He's the one in whom we boast. And then it says they put no confidence in the flesh. They don't put their trust or identity in themselves. This is key. Because I want us to see this morning that our joy is far more attached to our identity than we may realize. In other words, if we are misplacing our identity, then chances are our joy is being misplaced as well. Paul is saying that we have no room for confidence in the flesh because our joy is at stake. But here's what I love about Paul is he, he actually goes on and he plays their game a little bit. In verse 4, he goes on and he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's saying, don't put confidence in the flesh, but let's play it out. Let's see what happens if you do. He said, because here's the reality. I have more. Like Paul's a boss, man. He, he's a thug. He, he's a savage. He's like, I got, I got more than you got anyway. And he goes on to list off this laundry list of stuff that he could boast in. And, and if we're really honest this morning, it would run circles around all of us and anybody else in his day. And he's trying to prove a point here. But here's what I want us to see. I want us to see ourselves in Paul's life. Because if you break up what Paul is describing into two categories, it's simply this. It's things we have received and things we have achieved. He lists off about seven things in this passage, and it's things that he's either received that had nothing to do with himself or, or his own choice, and then stuff that he's done to earn things or, or to, to achieve things. And let's look at kind of how they're broken down. The first one, or the first section, it says that he's circumcised. He's the people of Israel. He's the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul's identity is, is being put in where he came from, his heritage, where he came from. He then says, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, let me actually go back to where he came from. See, it's a big deal that, that he was circumcised, that he was part of the people of Israel, that he was the tribe of Benjamin. That means he was, he was Jewish. He was a part of God's chosen people. That, that isn't something he had a, a role to play in, but ben, that was something he was boasting in. And, and the tribe of Benjamin, by the way, was a pretty significant tribe in the tribe of Israel. That's where the first king came out of. And his name was Saul. Paul's name before it was Paul was Saul. So I'm not saying that, that Paul was necessarily named after King David, but there's a pretty good chance they came out of the same tribe. And then he goes on, he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That means I'm an elite in the people of Israel. I'm, I'm an elite in the Hebrews. 
That's how people saw him. See, Paul not only is boasting in where he came from, but how people see him, his social status. He then claims to, to be a Pharisee, so he's now boasting in what he knows, his head knowledge, what's going on up here, that he knows more. The Pharisees knew the word inside and out. And then he goes on to say he persecuted the church, so he's basing then his, his boasting on his actions, his behavior, his religious duty. And then the last one is how good he is. He says that righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. And Paul lists off this huge list that far surpasses anything that I could put out there. But there's a massive problem. See, there's two things that, that all of these things have in common. And, and the first one is that you and I are guilty of all doing these things too. May look a little different, but, but be honest, we, we boast in where we came from. We boast in how people see us. We boast in what we know and what we do and how good we are in the same way Paul did. And, and here's the second problem with what all these have in common. They're all seemingly good. If you look at the Israelites of this day, the people he's talking to, they would look at this list and see really nothing wrong with it. It's actually a prestigious list. Here's the point I believe Paul's trying to make. It's not bad things that kept Paul from Jesus. It's not the stereotypical sins that, that we list off or that we try to hide under the rug. It's good things. Church, this morning, what good things are keeping you from knowing Jesus? What perceivingly good things are keeping you from knowing Jesus? Could it be your family? your job, your friends, your hobbies, money, your heritage, your smarts? Could it be going to church? Could it be doing the Christian thing for God instead of with God? It was the perceivingly good things that kept Paul from Jesus. And this is the trap that we fall into. See, we grab a hold of these things with clenched fists and then we eventually realize that they're going to come to end because they overpromise and underdeliver. But yet we settle and we're willing to hold on until the point of even death. And if we're not careful, like the raccoons, we will lose our lives over something that was not even worth it. So here is the million-dollar question this morning, is how do we let go of what we cannot keep to take a hold of what we cannot lose to experience more fully the joy that Jesus promises us? Here's three things we're going to talk about for the rest of our time together. Three things that Paul, Jesus through Paul, is calling us to do by the power of Holy Spirit. I want to make a significant emphasis on that. We cannot do these things alone. Holy Spirit has to be the one doing them in and through us, but we see them clearly in the text. Verse 7, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So the first way in which we experience this joy is to count everything as loss. It requires us to see Jesus as more supremely valuable, more supremely significant than anything else this world has to offer. He is worth counting everything as loss. And this speaks far more to his value than the value of anything else. You see, what, what we tend to do is we tend to, to put things on a scale. We tend to put our boasts on a scale. And then what we do is on the other side, we put Jesus. And we kind of play this balancing game of, well, man, man, in this situation, Jesus seems more significant. So I'm going to go with him. Or, man, in this situation, I feel like I've been there. I've done that. I, I have enough this. I have enough that. I have enough money. I have enough smarts. I have enough people around me. So I'm not going to trust him in this situation. We kind of live life sometimes balancing back and forth on this scale. And I love what Jesus does because here's what he does. He comes in and he Sparta kicks the, the, 
the, the scale completely over and says, what are you doing? I can't even fit on this thing anyway. Do you see that? The weight of Jesus would crush the scale into dust. And so what Jesus is saying, he's like, hey, stop evaluating me next to your stuff because when you try to do that, I'm going to break the scale anyway. It can't, I, I can't be contained. I can't be held on your, your social scales here. I love that. He's saying that if you really understood the value of who I am, you would quit trying to play this game. I love Paul's progression. It says that he counts everything as loss, or he says he counts these things as loss. So he counts his boasts as loss. Then he counts everything as loss. And then it says he's suffered the loss of all things. And then he calls them rubbish. I love that, Paul, you see kind of this progression as, as if in real time he's understanding more and more and more the value of what's set before him in the person of Jesus. Man, are you realizing in real time that, that Jesus is even more valuable than you thought he was when you walked in here right now? Because that's what's happening to Paul in real time. He says, it's worth suffering the loss of all things. Does that mean that if we really want joy in life that we must suffer? I think it does. I think Paul is, is hitting at the heartbeat of, of Christianity in a lot of ways. That true joy comes from suffering the loss of all things. Here, here's why that's important. Because it doesn't just mean that we should automatically have to flip a switch and that making sacrifices for Jesus all of a sudden become easy. I know for me at times that's the lie I've bought that, okay, Jesus, just get me to a point where this doesn't cost me anything anymore and then I'll do it. And Jesus is like, that's the whole point. Is you have to count the cost. You have to see what, what is seemingly so valuable in your life and you have to weigh it against me and realize that it's nothing in comparison to me. He then gets to a point where he calls it rubbish. That word literally means trash, garbage. Really, if we're, we're being real this morning, it means excrement, feces. That's, that's the word that Paul would have used there. That's the look that people would have gotten. They would have been like, wait, what? Eyes popping out of their head in the moment. Because what Paul is saying, that everything else in comparison to the person of Jesus Christ is trash, is rubbish. But then he goes on, he says, we count all things as loss. Why? So that we may be found in him. See, when you are willing to lose everything else, you can actually be found in him. What does that mean? It means that he gives a righteousness that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in him alone. Not from the law. Not from the boasts of the flesh. Not from doing the right things. It's, it's a righteousness that comes by his grace through trusting in him. That means that when Jesus now looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. When, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. He sees his son. He sees perfection. He sees someone who was willing to give his entire life and lay it down and deal with it on the cross. And so, man, if, if you have true joy in this life, if you have been bought with the blood of Jesus, that is your righteousness. that comes by grace through faith in him alone. Isn't that incredible to know that, that even when you look in the mirror and you doubt what you see, that Jesus, because of his blood, makes it possible for the Father to never look at you in doubt? Now when he looks at you, that's my child. That's my son. That's my daughter. I love them. I'm, I'm pleased with them. They're fully accepted in me because of my son Jesus. It's not based on you. Your identity is no longer based on you. So what do you need to count as loss in your life in comparison to the person of Jesus? This is where it gets practical this morning. For you, right now, the text says we need to count everything as loss. But I want you to identify right now that one thing in your life that, that you're willing to say, okay, Jesus, I'm willing to get rid of everything, but I don't know about this one. That if you were to sing that song, I Surrender All, you would sing it kind of like this, I surrender almost all. I surrender some of it, or I surrender 99.999% of it. And what's the one thing you need to count as loss? And how do you do that? You just need to hold that thing up next to the person of Jesus and allow Jesus to do his work. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that has to illuminate this. It's not our own work. But you see, when you begin to truly understand the value of Jesus, then, and only then, can you truly understand the value of everything else. And, and that's when, unlike the raccoon, you can actually 
let your clenched fist go. What do you need to count as loss? For me, I think the thing that that Holy Spirit's even revealing to me in, in real time is people's opinions of me. If I'm being honest, there's so many times I do things in order to gain approval from other people. And yet the reality of what I just said to us is true about me, that that nothing I do on the stage or off the stage determines how God sees me. And I love that. I need to count that as loss. What is it for you so that you can let go, be set free, and dive headfirst into the joy that Jesus offers? Count everything as loss. And then it gets better. We'll go on to verse 10. Clicker's not working, so we'll, we'll get there. But that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we need to count everything as loss. And the second thing is know Jesus intimately. Know Jesus intimately. I believe this is the crux of what Paul is trying to say in this passage. There is a massive difference between knowing about something and knowing something intimately. I'm going to say it to you again because I really want us to get this this morning. There is a massive, cosmic, catastrophic difference between knowing about something and knowing something by experience. Who in here loves Turkey Hill ice cream? Come on. I'm from Georgia, okay? So this isn't a thing there. We have uh, Mayfield, my first love, okay? Um, but, but Turkey Hill's the next level, okay? Turkey Hill's banging, all right? And so I remember when I first moved up from Georgia, I remember someone, I was in someone's kitchen and they were offering me uh, Turkey Hill double dunker ice cream, which can I just tell you, this is on the next, this is next level of Turkey Hill. This is the elite top shelf stuff right here. And someone said, hey, you want to try like chocolate chip mint? You want to try vanilla chocolate double dunker? I'm like, ooh, double dunker, you have me. What is that? And they look at the list and they, they say, it's a mo- mocha frozen dairy dessert swirled with chewy cookie dough and crunchy chocolate cookie swirl. Because that's what it says on the thing. They didn't say it like that, all right? But they just began to list off its, well, you know, kind of like coffee ice cream with cookies and stuff. And I was like, uh, I'm not like a huge fan of like all that in, in one thing, right? And some of you are like, how dare you? And then I looked at it, and, and to, to me, just being honest, when I first saw it, it didn't look that appealing. But my, my friend who I was sitting in there, she's like, dude, you got to try this. And so he didn't try to convince me to do it. He just put some in a bowl and handed me the bowl. And I just took the spoon, and I said, oh, my goodness, Jesus is coming back right now. This is the real deal. Give me the whole carton. <laughs> do you see what happened? I went from knowing about Turkey Hill Double Dunker ice cream to knowing Turkey Hill Double Dunker ice cream. And this is messy. And actually, you know what? I prefer it this way. I had a bowl last night of a different kind that I literally let sit for like 30 minutes so it becomes soup. And I just love like ice cream soup. It's amazing. (laughs) Chick-fil-A sandwiches and uh, soup ice cream bowls are going to be handed out in heaven. It's going to be awesome. (laughs) Can't wait. But man, I went from knowing about something to knowing it. And I love how this this relates to our faith, right? Because oftentimes, here's what it looks like for us to even share Jesus with other people. We we list off the ingredients. (laughs) Or we take the the carton and we beat them over the head. You got to eat it. It's good. You're going to die if you don't eat it. And man, here's what I think we should do. Hey, why don't you just take a spoonful? Like, wh- why don't you just, just try this? <sighs> you can't argue with that. You either like it or you don't. Man, can we become people who just start handing out spoons? Can we just be, become people, seriously, who, hey, hey, just try it. Like, Here's what I want to become like. Hey, hey, Ron, you know, Jesus is awesome, man. He's changed my life. 
and I could tell you all about it. But man, come on, brother. Come on. Try that. Game changer. Yes, sir. That's right. I want to give you the whole card, but we got a second service, okay? So. <laughs> That's what my daughters do. I love it more and more. But, but man, isn't that true? Man, when, when you taste it, it's a whole other level. But can, can I be honest? I think sometimes we, we know the Bible tells us taste and see that the Lord is good, but here's what we settle for. Well, Ron tasted it and he said it was good. That's enough for me. And don't miss it. I need Ron to tell me it tastes good. I need him to taste it and tell me it's good, but I, I can't settle with just that alone. And the whole purpose of Ron telling me that is so that I would taste it myself. Can we become the people of God who stop settling for knowing about him and start to know him intimately? Maybe part of why you're not experiencing joy to its fullest in your life right now is because you're settling for hearing ingredients listed off of a carton when Jesus is offering you a spoonful. And can I just tell you, Jesus is far better than Turkey Hill dunk, Double Dunker ice cream. He's far greater because you see, this will run out, this will melt, this will perish, and he cannot and will not and will never run out. He will never stop getting better. He gets better and better and better over time. But we'll never know if we don't taste it. See, Jesus is not interested in us knowing more about him. If you read the Bible, you realize, ironically, the people who knew about him the most are the same people that nailed him to a tree. Paul, before he becomes Paul, is so zealous because he sees the word of God and he sees the way people are living. And for whatever reason, his head, it doesn't line up. And so he's the people who are, are actually, he's the one who's killing the people who really know Jesus intimately because he knows a lot about him. See, it wasn't until Paul had an encounter with the living God that knocked him off of his donkey onto his donkey that he actually began to have his world flipped upside down in such a way that he becomes one of the greatest missionaries of all time. He goes from reading and hearing about the ingredients to tasting it and seeing it and giving it away. Do you know him this way? Intimacy it's about a personal experience and encounter with the living God. And my fear for myself and for others in this room is that we've been around it so much, we've heard about it so much, we've seen other people taste it, or we tasted it in the past, and we're settling there. Here's a conversation I've never heard happen. I'm not saying it hasn't. I've just never heard it. Someone offers you ice cream. Hey, you want a bowl? Ah, no, I had some last week. Huh? Like, are you, are you breathing? <laughs> I just offered you a bowl of ice cream. No, I had some last week. Does that sound like us with church? <laughs> I'm good. I had Jesus on Sunday. Oh, but I'm, I'm a really good Christian, so I came on Wednesday and Tuesday too. But yet the offer is on the table, moment by moment by moment. Will you taste and see? But he is good. So the question becomes, how? How can I know him intimately? Paul, I love it. He doesn't leave us hanging there. He tells us that it's through the resurrection power, that it's by sharing in his sufferings. It's about becoming like him in his death that we may gain a resurrection from the dead. What does the resurrection power mean? It means that you can actually now overcome sin and temptation in your life. It means that you actually have the authority by the grace of God to say no to the things that you used to not be able to say no to. And it's this intimate encounter where you're begging Jesus, I need you here, I need you here, I need you here. I need to encounter you here, I need to experience you here. It's not just, well, I know a lot of theology, so I'm not going to do bad things anymore. And if I'm being real, I've settled for that at times. We have the resurrection power flowing through us because Holy Spirit is inside of us. And yet we often don't tap into it. We have the gospel at our fingertips to give away to people. And it's this resurrection power that begins to change things. And it moves us in, from a place of being cynics to being childlike. 
Do you see that's what the resurrection power should do? It should make you more dependent. It should take you from being someone who's always just critical and cynical to someone who's more like a child. This reminds me of my daughter, Hadley. She's three, and she's, she's smart as can be. But just like any three-year-old, she, she understands a concept, but she uses the wrong words. And I don't even want to correct her on this one. She, she'll lose something like her baby doll. And what she's trying to communicate is, Daddy, I want you to help me find this. But this is how it comes out. Hey, Daddy, find my baby doll. Baby, I, I don't know where it is. I need you to find it. Baby, it's lost. You need to find it. And what she's trying to communicate is, I want you to help me find it. And yet I think that hits more at the heart of how we're supposed to be before God than I, I want you to help me. See, see, I know in my life, when I've trusted in myself and not Jesus, I, I get to a point with him where I'm like, well, Jesus, if you're not busy and if it's convenient for you, I'd like you to help me out with this. But when I get close to him and I'm intimate with him and I have this relationship with him, I need you, Jesus. I can't do this on my own. I looked under the couch. The baby doll's nowhere to be found. I, I don't know where it is. And if I don't find it, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm going to pull my hair out and I don't know what I'm going to do. There's a level of dependency that comes the closer you get to him. It's the resurrection power that begins to get unlocked in our prayer life. Are you tapping into it? Sharing in his sufferings. I love the word sharing here. Paul's trying to hint that, that when we experience, not if, when we experience suffering in this life, that we get to share it with Jesus. What a noble and honorable call. And by no means do I want to minimize pain or suffering in this life because, man, we've collectively as a body gone through things that are beyond comprehension at times. And yet there's something about it that we get to know him more intimately, more personally, encounter him in ways that, quite frankly, nothing else will allow us to encounter him in. So I just want to encourage you, if you're in sufferings right now, know that, that Jesus is sharing it with you. That you get the honor of sharing his sufferings with him. I mean, I see my girls, three and one, Hadley and Kingsley, and they're finally learning how to share things. And man, it's so blissful. It's like a pastime for me to sit down and watch my kids play with the little plastic food. Because Hadley's like, Kingsley, you want, you want me to make you something? And she, you know, puts bananas in a pot and puts them in the oven because that's how you cook bananas. And then she gets them out all done and hands them to Kingsley and Kingsley starts to chew on them. And then what you see in this moment is as they begin to share, they begin to giggle. And then I look and I start to giggle. And I get it. They're playing with plastic, plastic fruit. And what we're going through is far greater than that. But there's a level of connection that happens when we share in Christ's sufferings with him. Becoming like him in his death, that means we have to die to ourselves. We have to die to our flesh and die to our own desires, die to our wants. We have to say no to us in order to say yes to him. Which if we're being honest at times, this can be really hard. And that's the point of getting to know him more intimately because the more we get to know him, the, 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 way, the way in which we're able to say yes becomes much more natural. Not easy. Just more natural. I know this point in my walk with Jesus, there are things that 10 years ago I had a really hard time saying yes to. And now that I've known him more by his grace, saving me and sanctifying me, I can say yes to those things now a lot more naturally. They still cost me. We have to die to ourselves and our own desires. Because unlike our culture preaches this Disney gospel which says, follow your heart, do what you want, Sometimes the worst thing for me is me. Sometimes the worst thing for me to do is to do what I want to do. And yet we preach in our culture, you do you, boo. <laughs> and anybody who, who doesn't support you doing you is a hater, and we just need to block out the haters. And what Jesus is saying, please, will you become like me in my death? Because you see, when Jesus died, he took all of those things and he put them in the grave. And he walked out of it, but those things did not. In order to gain resurrection from the dead, see, that's the hope. That is the joy, is that knowing one day we will be face-to-face -face with him forever, an uninterrupted community for all of eternity. That's why we grind. That's why we desire to know him more intimately, is because... He is the means 
to the greater end, which is himself, the greater end. This is the motivation that moves us to let go of the rubbish that's in the trap, to let go of the clenched fist so that we can begin to take hold of freedom. We count everything as loss. We know Jesus more intimately, verse 12. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Count everything as a loss. Know Jesus intimately. Press on towards the prize. Press on towards the prize. See, like Paul, you and I are not perfect yet. We're being made into his image. We are being made and conformed into his likeness. And one day we will stand before the Father perfect. That's amazing. And God sees us that way already. That's another, let that bake your noodle for a moment. Like he sees you that way already. So maybe what you need to do to get more joy in your life is to start seeing yourself the way Jesus sees you. That one's for free. That's not even in my notes. (laughs) Paul knows he's not perfect. We need to know we're not perfect. And that's what allows us to press on. Why do we press on? We desire to make Jesus ours because he has made us his very own. That's Christianity in a nutshell. We don't work to earn it, but because he's bought it for us and it is ours, man, we go after him. Because we have nothing to lose at the end of the day. He takes a hold of us so we can take a hold of him. He's made you his very own if you're in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that good news to know that you are his and that nothing can pluck you out of the Father's hand because of the blood of Christ covering you? Come on. It's good news. So that's why we do it. How do we do it? Paul's good, man. Jesus is good. He he lays it out. Forget what lies behind. Forget what lies behind. See, there's two things I began to think about as I read this. One, we can analyze our past and we can become paralyzed by it. In other words, paralysis by analysis. We can look at, man, if you only knew me then, and if you only knew how bad it really was, If you only knew what I thought up here, guess what? Jesus knows all of that, and that didn't keep him from pursuing you when he went to the cross. Amen. And Jesus says, guess what? That's the price I was willing to pay. I was willing to to take care of all of that. So if you get to a point where you're allowing your past to hinder you from being used by me, then you're selling short what I did by rising out of the grave. So that's one avenue we can take. And I think we can clearly say, man, like, don't do that, right? Like, Jesus has more for you in this. But, but here's the area that I find myself in, if I'm being vulnerable and honest with you this morning. I, I, I look back in the past and I see how God showed up and he was faithful and he moved and I start to doubt, can he do it again? He parted the Red Sea. He became flesh. He rose again. He, he saved me while I was on the way to hell with a full tank and he rescued me. But can he do it again? I begin to doubt that and to question that. And so what I do is I look at my past and say, man, I know he was great then, but I don't know if he could be that way now. Or, man, he did that then. He's going to do it that exact same way this time. And so what happens is we begin to put God in a box. And can I just let you know something? That's never a good idea. Because he doesn't stay in it. (laughs) He blows right out of that thing. But what happens is when we forget what lies behind is it it allows us to be fully committed to what's in front of us. Forgetting what lies behind helps us to understand that there's always more with Jesus. Do you know that? There's always more with Jesus. So we strain forward to what lies ahead. We are to stride and to strive forward for what is ahead. The imagery that would have come to the minds of the Philippians is an Olympic sprinter who has no business looking behind them at what's, what's going on there, right? We've seen enough races where people start to pay attention to what's going on around them and then they lose when they were winning by a country mile. But when you forget what lies behind and you strain forward to what lies ahead, then and only then can you experience the joy that, has, that Jesus has for you. Keep your eyes on the prize. Don't look back. 
What is the prize? Paul makes a really big deal out of the prize in this passage. He says, man, it's something that I'm worth, it's worth counting everything lost for. It's worth getting to know Jesus intimately for, and it's worth straining for. It's worth forgetting everything in my past and moving ahead. So what is the prize? It's Jesus. He's the prize. He's the one that gets us to the prize, and he is the prize himself. He is the beginning, he is the middle, he is the end. He is the alpha, he is the omega. He's the God that we talked about in that video. He's the one that puts skin on. He's the one that spoke stars into existence. He's the one that made a covenant. And he's the one who delivered on it in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who became like you and me. Divinity and humanity met and salvation was the reaction. He showed up. He became like us. He did all these crazy miracles. He turned water into wine. He took blind eyes and helped them see. He took lame people and helped them walk again. He told storms to shut their mouths. He He told dead people, stop it. And he went to the cross. And the Bible tells us not only did he pay for our sin, but he became sin. That he took on all of the iniquity that we deserve to take on. And he put it on himself. And he breathed his last breath thinking of you and me. And he died. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, conquering sin, death, and the devil, and saying, that's all you got. Try again. It's not going to work. I'm bigger. I'm better. I'm greater. I'm worth risking everything for. Because you see, following Jesus is risky. Paul tells us, you're going to lose some stuff. In fact, you're going to need to lose everything. But it's absolutely worth it. Because you see, Jesus doesn't just have freedom for you, church. He is freedom for you, church. He doesn't just have joy for you. He is joy for you. So what do you need to count as loss this morning? What do you need to count as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of Jesus himself? And will you start today getting to know him more intimately? If you don't know Jesus in the room... That's the offer on the table for you to cross over from death into life, to get to know this God that we talk about, to encounter him in a real way, a life-changing way. Would you talk to somebody today about starting a relationship with Jesus? And will you forget what lies behind and press on towards the prize? Because you see, joy is fully experienced. When we give up what we cannot keep to take a hold of what we cannot lose. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worth risking everything for. You are worth counting everything as lost because the beauty of that is when we put anything up against you, it is worthless. So we're not really losing much, we're just gaining everything. So Jesus, we we sing to you now. We want to become more childlike in this moment. We want to risk our reputations. We want to risk looking silly and crazy and dare I even say foolish to those around us. But there's no shame in looking like a fool when we give up what we cannot keep to take a hold of you. So here we go, Jesus. We're we're letting it go and we're getting lost in who you are because then and only then can we be found. We love you, God. We thank you. And all those people said, amen. Let's worship Jesus together, church.